So Luke chapter 22, verse 24 says, Now there was also a great dispute among them as to which one of them should be considered great, the greatest. So he goes through this, he does the Last Supper, and here the disciples begin to debate on who's going to be the greatest among them. And, and we know from the other Gospels, they're saying, hey, you know, James, uh, James and John had their mom come and say, hey, can they sit on your right and left? And she goes, hey, you know, he goes, you don't even know what you're talking about. But what's amazing is most of the time in Scripture, the recorded accounts we have of the disciples are them arguing about this. These great men of faith, these foundations of the New Jerusalem, the the foundation, these men God chooses to use, and they're all in a dispute about who's greatest. They're all trying to get position. And it's kind of interesting to think as they sat down later in life and when they did get together at some point, can you imagine them looking back past the cross at this and go, what the heck were we thinking? We just had no idea what was going on. We were so lost. I mean, if we would have just understood half of what was going on. You know, and them looking back. And so Jesus answers them arguing here, and he says, in verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. And so it's kind of not the way our nation's been set up. I mean, this somewhat can be a foreign ideal to us, or should be a foreign ideal to us, is in a kingdom, when there's a king, the king's job isn't to serve you. The king is to be served. You exist to make his life better, and if you make his life better enough, he might bless you back. But your job is to live and die and take care of whatever's the king's. And in our country, because it was founded on biblical principles, was opposite. Our government was supposed to serve the people. And its purpose was for us, not us for the government. Which, when you look at all of history, is something totally unique. And so, you know, as we look at these things, the typical world, your job, where you work and things, is to benefit your employer. You know, if you work, and you work under a, a king in a sense or something, your, the, the purpose of your job is so that they can make a profit and an income and these things. Now, if that has been disagreed with, uh, again, I mean, in our times, things have changed. Um, I don't know, remember if, you know, some of you guys went through that grieving process when Hostess went out of business and Twinkies were selling, you know, for 75 bucks on eBay or whatever. But, you know, they basically, the union got together and said, you know what, no, we you are going to keep this place open even though you're learning, losing money and pay us more. And at a point that fails. No, the owner isn't going to continue to lose money so you guys can have a job. So he closed it and sold it. And they actually went to court to sue him that he could not close the company and lose money to pay them. And then, he want, and then they insisted that he had to give it to them freely so they could have it. And then it happened. They sold Hostess. I think Bimbo in uh, Mexico technically owns them now. So Twinkles will never be the same. And I don't have to, anyways, we won't go there. But so the thought is, you know, you sit there and you look at it and you go, it, they're king and Gentiles, hey, there's authority and you're there to benefit them. And you, so you see this many times, many examples in the world, how it works is, you know, you have somebody over and you have lordship or power or authority over somebody and they're there to benefit you. In verse 26 he says, but... Not so among you. 
On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as a younger, or with less authority, the servant, like a little brother, and he who governs as a servant. Now, to be great in the kingdom of God, this is a weird concept, to be servant, you know? And we are to be opposite of the world. When God gives you authority over somebody, it's so you can serve them, not so you can get what you want out of them. Uh, me and Heidi took a little uh, run over to the coast for a night, and one of the things we sometimes do when we're sitting there is we'll flip through channels on a TV because we don't have TV and we don't have channels and you know it's like you know especially when you get the streaming stuff you never have to watch commercials and all that but you know and I think it, it was one of the uh, I'll, I'll leave him nameless one of the preacher guy things and I kind of watched it for a minute for just pure entertainment factor but it was very clear the people and why they were there he wasn't there for them they were there for him you know and it's interesting to see that and when you look at a situation and when you look at people in service, that's one of the first signs. Are they a servant? Do they serve people or are they there to be lifted up or, you know, are they there to be served? And so the Bible says very clearly here, as the 12 disciples who are fighting to be wonder who's the greatest, he's saying, hey, let's, we're going to flip this all in the head. Remind you, Jesus washed their feet. It's not in this gospel, but in the gospel of John, how, how he girded himself, how he was lowly, how the king of all kings went to the lowliest place and served them. Verse 27 says, For whoever is great who sits at the table, or he who serves, is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one of those who serves. Because Jesus gritted himself and washed their feet. He served them lowly. Trying to teach this lesson again and again that to serve is what we're called to do. The kingdom of God, to be great in the kingdom of God, is to be a servant. And number one, we have a huge example. You know, Jesus served them, washed their feet, took the lowliest position. Right before this great thing, one of the most important things I'm going to share with you before I leave is I am here to serve you guys. His whole purpose in coming, leaving heaven aside, authority and all those things, which we can't even imagine leaving heaven aside, to come to be born lowly, to become little, to become nothing, and to be put on a cross to serve us. You know, we think of the cross as, you know, we kind of sanitize it. It was a horrible, disgraceful thing. It was a cursed thing. It was the most cursed thing. And he was willing to come and endure that to be able to serve us. And besides the curse of the cross, to take our sin upon him. Now you sit there and go, okay, our sin upon him. Let's think about that a minute. If we were to... You were sitting here and I said, by the way, Apple hacked your computer and every sin you've done is now available on YouTube and is streaming. How many of you guys would make it out of the service before you could try to delete it or do something with it, right? You'd be done. You'd be, you'd be so embarrassed. You'd feel so, everybody know it. You would have such shame. And that's what he endured for us. Willingly choosing to walk and serve us in that way, to take all that shame upon him. You know, one, one thing, I don't know who I heard it from or whatever, it says, you know, 
you can never step down from ministry. If you are stepping down from ministry, you weren't doing ministry. You should only be able to step up out of ministry. If you are truly serving people, it's a lowly position. You're not up in any position, you're serving. It's not a promotion in the sense of the world. You should be serving it of all. And that's really the case many times, you know, you'll, you'll see people, well, I really wanted this or I really wanted that and this. And, and what we're looking for is, are you willing to love and serve people? And we have, you know, I'm lucky to have been raised in the fellowship and Calvary Chapel and those things and have seen such a good example of servants, men willing to serve. You know, even you talk and you hear Chuck Smith stories, you know, he's even later in his life driving across the parking lot Sunday morning, picking up cigarette buds out of his golf cart, you know, cruising around and just serving. And sometimes, you know, no offense, there's been times I've been in ministry and it's been hard and it was so nice just to sweep up after people. You know, nobody has to see it. Not many people have an opinion about it. You know, sometimes, you know, don't, don't, don't despise those lowly times. You'll look back with them at fondness sometimes. But man, Lord, if I could just serve you sweeping a church somewhere or cleaning a bathroom, how blessing that would be, you know. Same reward in heaven. And you can, you know, look at Moses' life. Go, you know, we're going to be, uh, we're finishing up in the, by the end of this month, for those who've been reading through with us through the, the gospel, and going through the whole New Testament on the reading plan, we are finished at the end of this month with the New Testament. I think from April to now, we've finished the whole New Testament and we're going into the Old Testament. So you'll see the life of Moses and how he argued about whose people they were. Him and, him and God went back and forth on whose people they were. No, they're your people. No, they're your people. They always kept throwing them off. You know, but you sit there and you see serving is there, and we are not to lord over or take power over and stuff. And I think sometimes it's, it's hard to do even in, in certain situations. The one place I think I've take exception to this was my children. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to lord over you. You're going to clean and you're going to learn. But, you know, there's a way of serving them. Even bossing around and telling them to do their laundry and stuff is loving them and serving them in a way, doing helping them do something they don't want to do. But we are to be servants. And it... It's one of those things to sit down and really consider. You know, it's, it's hard to get offended. I can't believe that person thought I should do that. Well, if you're a lowly servant, why shouldn't they think you should do that, right? <laughs> you know, it's just an interesting thought, how we can get in our minds, because we're all guilty of it. Like, what do you mean? I'm the... And you put a title or whatever, and sometimes I really can corrupt people when they put a title and they don't understand what it means just to serve you know um, yeah it, it's just an interesting thing how God changes and his kingdom so contrary to the kingdoms of this world and the flesh and when you serve people sometimes they just don't understand it they look at you like you're crazy why are you doing that you know we've seen it repeatedly in different situations where you know you hear it People do not get people in church sometimes. They're, they're always worried about where their motive is or what's going on or, you know, maybe they just, you know, sometimes, it's, sometimes I just think, like, you know, that gives me 35 points in heaven, so that way it makes sense to them and they leave me alone, right? Because they're so confused or something of why you're doing something. You know, well, I got 35 points in heaven for helping you out with this, so, okay, that makes sense, they let you go. But, 
Anyways, it's not the case. It's just doing it because you, you're sharing the love of God and it opens eyes and it opens hearts when you serve people in that way and minister to them. Verse 28, it says, But those of you who have continued with me in trials. So there were some who did not. It says, those are you. He's talking to his disciples. Those of you who've continued with me in my trials. Not all continued with them. The pressures, what they were going to, hearing what was coming in Jerusalem. Sure, when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to die, they're away. I didn't sign up for this. This isn't, is this in a new kingdom and me being in a position? You know, there was Judas there who, who bailed, who was, who was, you know, more concerned about money and position and those things. And in verse 29, it says, and those I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in the king, my kingdom and sit on the throne judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, he's sitting here talking to the 12 disciples, telling them, hey, you guys are worried about being great and everything else. It's going to be backwards. It's going to be serving and all. And, and, and the kingdom to come, what's coming, those of you who have stayed with me through this, I'm bestowing this kingdom upon you. The authority of this kingdom what this kingdom is, the, the calling of this kingdom, the directing, the command from the Father of these things is going to be upon you. That you may eat and drink at my table. There will be a time when we come and this, this, this thought of a table and my banqueting table is in heaven, Jewish, through the whole testament, the table of God in heaven is a, a heavenly place. And you're going to be there. You're going to be at that table. There will be a reward. There will be a place to sit at that table. There will be places for the 12 disciples to sit in judgment over Israel. There will be thrones there. And in Revelation, it talks about how their names are written on the foundation of the new Jerusalem. So they are. there are going to be positions with authority and stuff, but that becomes from them being servants. And if you look at these men and the rest of their lives, they were servants even to death. They laid down their life. And that is kind of how the kingdom is set up when you look at it and the foundation of it. Now, even then, the heavenly perspective, but even for now, these, this is not just the kingdom to come. This is how the kingdom is set up now. You think of when uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is all about what the kingdom of God is. Right? And it's about the poor in the spirit, the meek, the humble. It was turning all those thoughts of what it meant to be blessed by God, righteous and part of his kingdom, upside down. To be a servant. You know, he's laying aside, when you think about what the kingdom of God means for us. What does it mean to be a servant? We can think about in church, serving in children's or serving in this, but what about outside the walls here? What did Christ do? If we're to be Christ-like and serve as he has served, he came, he threw away all his authority, what was righteous, what was just, was unfairly treated, to lay his life down and aside for sinners that were lost. You know, when you go into your job, your workplace, into the store, do you feel, well, I'm here to be a representation and a servant of God's kingdom to serve these people or that person? 
you know, you're sitting there in a situation, and your first thought is, why don't they just smack their child? And then maybe they wouldn't act that way. Is your thought, well, maybe I should be serving them and loving on them, right? That person that cut me off in traffic, I'm here to serve them. No, it's not usually what we think about, right? But that's what God has called us to be, to be a Christian, to be intentional about your walk with Jesus, is to realize to be part of this kingdom that is bestowed upon us is to lay aside your rights, your authorities, your goals, what you think, and to serve sinners that are lost that they might come into the knowledge of God, that they might know who he is. And even through serving that, sometimes you get in a position, God lifts you up. The Bible in James says, you know, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he lifts you up. And when you're serving, one of the key things to serving is when you're lifted up, you're confused. It's awkward. It's weird. There's this term that came out and, you know, they blame it on every president. Oh, this story came popular during Bush or Obama or whatever. It's called a post-turtle. And the post-turtle was supposedly this guy in the 70s back in Texas somewhere or wherever, you know, referred to the president as a post-turtle. And the doctor he was seeing goes, what do you mean a post-turtle? Well, a post-turtle is when you're driving along and there's a turtle sitting up on top of a fence post. He doesn't have any reason to be up there, can't get up there himself, has no purpose for being up there. And if anything, you feel sorry for the poor guy and you just want to help him down. And that's how he referred to whatever president you want to put in there, you know. That's what that person is. They don't belong there. This Many times in ministry, suddenly you feel like you're a post turtle. You're up there on a post. People are looking at you going, wow, you're doing something amazing. And you don't, you don't belong up there. You don't know how you got up there, and you're just wondering how to get down. <laughs> All right? You get there, and people are, wow, you know, you, congratulations, and the world's there. The amazing thing about the world is they know you're a post turtle. But they can't admit that because the only way you're up on top of that post is something God did. God put you there. They don't want to admit that. They want to celebrate you because you're a turtle that somehow got on top of a post. <laughs> you're like, no, you don't understand this. The only reason this person's in this position is because God puts them there. And I've experienced it. It's weird. I know who I am. I'm a, I'm a roofer. I'm a dirty hand roofer. And I, you know, very, I don't know, just simply in there's certain situations God has put me in where I'm sitting there. And it's like, why are you guys looking at me? Well, because you're sitting on top of a post, Tim, and you don't belong there. They're thinking somehow it's great you got there, but you know better. You know, and it's just simple the way it is. And so sometimes you're serving God in there, but when you're on top of that post, you don't suddenly go, oh, yeah, I knew it. I could get up here somehow. I don't know how I got here, but look at me, guys. No, you realize, no, I just want to get back off this post because this is kind of embarrassing. And if anything, because I don't know how I got up here, I don't know how to get down, I just want to be back on the ground serving. You know, just leave me alone. You know, and that's, you know, you'll see that. You'll see men that do that where they, they're just, they just want to be service and they don't want the spotlight on them. And there's many, many men I've met that way. They'd rather just be serving. And, and please, don't, don't start shining a light on me. If it goes, gives glory to God, so be it. But just get me off here as quick as possible. Especially before somebody gets a picture. Don't Google post turtle online. These poor turtles all left up there. I wonder what happens if you leave when nobody drives by for a while. It's got to be cruel. Anyways. But you sit there and you look at that. And, and, you know, if you ever get up on a post and suddenly you get, you're sitting there. Yeah, I did this somehow. Check yourself. You're not being a servant. Something's off. And so as we continue on, you look at verse 32, we kind of see what happens when you fell in this kingdom. What happens when you fell in your Christian life and you're walking? Verse 31 says, And the Lord said to Simon, Simon, Simon. 
Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now, anytime Jesus repeats something twice, it's kind of like, pay attention, listen up. Martha, Martha. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? He says, oh, Simon, Simon. Can you imagine the scene? You're sitting there. They're debating about who's going to be the greatest. Obviously, Peter, James, and John are like, hey, we went to the Mount Transfiguration. We're up there somewhere, right? We're in the upper three. We're the, you know. And Jesus turns around and immediately goes, Simon, Simon. You know, who was the guy who, when his foot washing, goes, oh, you don't, don't, don't wash my feet, Lord. Don't wash my feet. Well, then you can't have any part of them. Wash my whole body. I mean, you know, he, he obviously was thinking there. And then here Jesus just goes, hey, Simon, Simon, right? Like, uh-oh. Satan has asked for me, you, to sift you as wheat. Now, Satan has asked to destroy you, utterly destroy you. It's interesting to see, even here, Satan has to ask. He can't just go and do it. That you, as a believer, as a child of God, you're protected by the Savior. Satan just doesn't have free reign to jump in you and do whatever he wants. Okay? And you sit here and he desires to destroy you, but I have prayed that your faith should not fail. But what's interesting here is Jesus says, I pray that your faith should not fail, but it says, when you have returned. So wait a minute. If my faith isn't going to fail and it should not fail, but yet I got a return, that means that something failed. Something went wrong, right? When you return to me, strengthen your brethren. It's interesting to see for me, I, I love the fact that we get to see this part of Simon and how God shares about it because we fail. We all fail in our walk. And does that mean we lose salvation? No. He wasn't utterly destroyed by Satan, but he did have to return. He ends up denying Christ three times and he fails, but yet God is praying for him. God is forewarning him. As we go through the next couple weeks and we see Simon, Peter, and how he lives this out, and the back and the forth there, to realize that God's even warning him beforehand. Why? Because he's mad at him? I can't believe you're going to do this. No. Totally opposite. I see this coming. I know you're going to fail. Satan wants to destroy you, and I'm praying for you. I am on your side. How many of you in here, when you have fallen short and have blown it and have walked away from God, would have ever thought that he was rooting for you beforehand not to, that he can't wait for you to return, that he isn't sitting there angry and upset at all? This reveals so much about the heart of our Savior, so much we can't even comprehend. Can you tell me which one of you in here in a relationship, if somebody was going to deny you, reject you, what your conversation would be before that happened? Would it be, I'm praying for you? I'm praying that you're not going to be totally wiped out? No. Some of us might go buy some ammo. 
take care of it before it happens. No, right? I mean, honestly, we're not that way. But to see God's heart, it is so foreign to, for us to understand. You know, and, and God prays for us. And that, not even just Peter. Not even just Peter in this situation. Romans, if you would turn to, um, get back here, Romans 8.31. Yeah, Romans 8.31. Turn with me there. Romans 8.31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is it who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who can separate us from the love of God? Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, right now is making intercession, prayer, to God the Father on our behalf. You think of the times you fail and the things and how Satan comes in and goes, oh, you're a loser, you suck, I can't believe that ever would happen. And you realize God is praying for us, God is praying for us when those things come beforehand, that we will come through them. And even after that, what did he say? I'm not just praying that Peter comes through this, but when you do, I'm entrusting you with ministry. What? You're going to fail and I'm going to entrust you with ministry. Could you imagine if your boss would like to say, hey, you know, Tony, when you totally mess this whole project up, I want you to come back to work tomorrow, and I'm going to give you a higher position, and I want you to lead all these guys. I don't know about that. You know, there's, there, are, there are some of that. I mean, I've had that. I had a kind of a scenario happen like that once roofing. I had a guy who was um, driving one of our dump trucks down 99 here, and right before, after Hammer and Wilson Way, there's that little S curve. And they had thrown the tile roof in the truck, and they didn't level it, so it was in a stack. So he hit that corner, and it slipped to the side, and it fishtailed, and he rolled the dump truck. And after he came, he goes, man, I don't know if I can drive a car again at all. I said, nope, you are going to be the guy driving all my trucks. What? You learned a lesson. I guarantee you, you're going to make it. And sure enough, man, he checked the brake. He checked the fluid. He was so scared of dying that he took care of my trucks quite well. He was the safest driver I had after that. I mean, you roll a dump truck, it's a wake-up call. I've rolled some other cars, but never a dump truck. So we put it back together on, on the road, too. He drove the same dump truck down the road. Anyways, you know, but it's like you made a mess of it. I want you to strengthen the brothers. Why does, how is he going to strengthen us? Just his testimony. I blew it. I failed. I denied Christ. I totally rejected him. Not just at any time. At the hour of need, I walked away. I denied it at the main thing here, and yet he has entrusted me. And yet he calls us, and yet he prays for us and intercedes for us day and night. Verse 36, it says, And then he said to them, But now he who has money... Or, I'm skipping here. I think I'm skipping. Yeah. So verse 33. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, do you think Peter was intending to fail at this point? Like, I'm just lying to God about this. You know... I'm just going to say this because I'm thinking, I'm looking for the back door already, but I don't want him to know that. So, you know, I'm going to, no, he truly believed this. 
This is where his heart was at. He didn't have a laid out plan, but when things changed and the pressures came, he failed. He, he didn't, his faith didn't totally fail, but he denied him, right? And so, verse 34 is, and he says to you, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. And so Peter's sitting there. I mean, you talk about shock, right? You're sitting there talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You have this thing, the pride sitting there going, man, I'm not going to do this. And Jesus says, no, even you, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, I'm not even this. And he goes, before tomorrow morning, this is going to happen three times. I don't think Peter believed him at this point. He's like, just there's no way. Imagine what the other 12 thought at this point. They were talking. Remember last time they were all confused to who was going to betray Jesus? Right? Judas, they thought, just left to go get some bread and stuff. They didn't, they didn't realize Judas went to leave to go betray him and do what he needed to do. They're thinking, I'm sure the rest of them are sitting there pointing at Peter going, ha, now we know who it is. Jesus called him out. We're set, right? Might have some apologies after you know, a couple years after, hey, Peter, you know that night, I was really judging you. I thought God was calling you out on it. I am so glad, it sounds weird, I'm so glad Peter denies Jesus three times. Could you imagine, what if he didn't, you know? Just be Peter, the superhero apostle, you know? sat there and, you know, what would the story look like compared to him, you know, yeah, he snuck up and watched the whole thing, but, you know, the girl called him out and said, yes, I am, and maybe, you know, would they have hung him next to him on the cross? I mean, compared to being like us, part of this kingdom, serving, but yet failing, and what it looks like to fail in God's kingdom, what it looks like to fail in a Christian walk, so that we see the heart of Christ so clearly and for us. And so, falling in the kingdom of God. But yet, Jesus is for us. Jesus is praying for us. He even restores Peter later after. There isn't anger there. There isn't, you know, all these emotions we would relate to, it, but just love, even love beforehand. And in verse 35, I kind of try to retile this thing a couple times, but a section to make it clear, but it, verse 35 is kind of how we identify, which can be taken very wrong these days. There's a lot of people identifying a lot of different ways today, but how do we identify as Christians? What does it mean to be called a Christian? What did it look like, especially then, if you were to paint the scene of what's going on, the culture and these things, what does it mean to identify with Christ? Verse 35, he says, and he said to them, when I send, sent you out without money, bags, knapsacks, and sandals, did you lack anything? And so they said nothing. So back in Luke 9, earlier on, Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, more than just the 12, sent them out to go share about the coming kingdom of God. Go sh preach that the God kingdom of God is coming. And they went out and they were told not to take anything with them and just to go out and whatever door was open to them to go in and God would provide. And if the city didn't want to, they were supposed to shake the very dust off their feet to have nothing to do with them, a testimony against them, and go to the next. And so they went out in this ministry. And the ministry, even from there forward, has been that way. 
God has provided everything they needed. When it came to pay taxes, how much money did they have? None. They had to go out and go fishing and pull a coin out of a fish's mouth. They, they weren't reliant on these things to survive. And he says to them after this and what they're used to, he says, he said to them, verse 36, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him trade, sell his garment to buy one. So suddenly there's a big change coming in the ministry from what these disciples are used to. They're used to God being there, God being their total provision, his protection, and those things. And now they're saying, he's saying, hey, there is a change going to come. There is a different time happening. And very much we know for these disciples there were. I think we can know it in our heads, but we can't really know it in an overall sense. If you were to sit there and think, okay, walking with Jesus, being with Jesus, seeing his provision, and then going back to a world where he isn't. For three days he was buried until he rose again. The darkness without a Savior to walk through that and what was going them were going to go through even in those things. It was going to be a different world, a different time. And even after Jesus rose again, he continued to be able to be with them, but for short periods of time, but he gave them a promise of what? The Holy Spirit to come. So it was going to be different. At this point, the ministry was going to be different. There's many people who would teach that portion of Scripture and say, you know, as a missionary, you need to just leave all your money and just go out and let God totally provide. Well, don't read verse 36 then. Then you can go do that. No. It kind of is like, hey, something's different here. What's going on? Verse 37 says, and this is the reason, for I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. For he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have ended. Now what things concerning Jesus, concerning him, have ended at this point? What's coming to an end? It's not his life because he's going to rise again. It's not his word, it's eternal. The revelation of who Jesus is to the world and what the Savior is to the world was coming to an end. At this point, even the disciples, when they're fighting over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, have this ideal that there's going to be a ruling, reigning Jesus sitting on a throne, and we're going to be part of his kingdom. Not that we're going to have a Savior who's going to be numbered amongst the transgressors, hung disgracefully upon a cross, who's going to die for the sins of the world. How God was going to accomplish salvation was not clear. And now that revelation of who Jesus is, what the Savior is, his first coming, is coming to an end. And he's going to be a Savior hung on a cross. And for us to identify when we think about, oh yes, I'm a Christian, again, we kind of miss it. We miss that picture. I mean, could you imagine, imagine the, the worst horrible person you have ever think that was arrested okay and maybe they weren't horrible for anything but you know that's what the reports were Jesus reports of why they were killing him he was this religious zealot he was destroying Jerusalem he was he was deceitful all, all the media coming out of Jerusalem that they could control about the person of Jesus was either coming out contradictory or he was this horrible thing that should be put down 
this zealot, this rebellious guy. Imagine the word going back to Rome. What were they hearing in Rome about this man? Right? And to go and say, okay, after church we're all getting in the bus and we're going to go over to the gas chamber where they killed the guy and we're going to put names of the person on our shirts and walk around and tell everybody about them and say, hey, guess what I am? I'm not Tim, I am and put that person's name on you. That's what it was like to say, I'm a Christian. I'm identifying with somebody who was disgracefully put to death on a cross. It's a way different thought. And really, so much it's a different thought, a way of a difference, a revelation in a sense to the whole world is, to many, it's a stumbling block. The gospel, when they first went out and they shared and they went out with no things, was the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is now. That's exciting news. Right? If somebody came up to you and said, hey, God's kingdom is now and this and that, that, woo, you guys are all on board, right? I want to be part of the kingdom of God. We get to get rid of Rome. All the, you know, we get to get rid of the U.S. government and whatever. We're going to have Jesus as our Savior, the Savior, the Messiah is here. This is awesome. God's going to rule and reign. Make Jerusalem great again. I mean, it's going to be awesome, right? And then you go, yeah. And so the main center of this whole thing is the Savior, this Messiah, he's going to be killed and disgraced. Oh, that's my candidate? Wait, no, 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 I want to elect somebody else. That doesn't sound good. Wait a minute, hold on. I'm not signing up for that. And why has he, he got to be killed? How is that going to help me? Well, he's going to be killed and he's going to raise again, but, you know, it's your sin that's going to put him there. What do you mean, my sin? Somebody's got to die for my sin? Oh, no, I'll go serve in this thing. I'll be part of the movement, but I don't want to have to deal with myself. Right? That's not cool. I mean, at this point, it's a stumbling block. Because what it does is it turns it around back at us. It's not just joining a movement or something. It is... The Savior of the world came to die for us sinners. And that means to accept that, you must know you're a sinner. And there are so many people that come in and don't, don't put that on me. That's hate speech, you know. Don't tell me I'm wrong. You need to just, you know, tell me good luck on my life choice I've chosen. Who cares if I like to eat radiator fluid? It's my choice. You should be supportive pay for my medical bills later. I don't know. It's, it's really that way when you slow down and think about it, though this has become a stumbling block. You tell me any religion in the world where, okay, yeah, the Savior, the Messiah, the guy that's telling you what to do, he's going to die for your sin. He's going to give up your life. The God they believe in is going to come down and sacrifice himself. It's not, it doesn't happen. It doesn't make sense. It's a stumbling block for many. And for others, especially back then, was... What? You're going to identify with the cross? You're going to put that thing that's vile that we would not talk about and you want to hang one on your neck? That's horrible. Do you realize people that were hung on the cross, the family would literally blot them out. They were not to be talked about at any family event. If you were hung on a cross, your family acted like you never existed and willfully desired that to be the case. It was so disgraceful. And to turn around and say, hey, I'm going to identify with this. I am, I am of Jesus. I am a Christian. I am like that. And I'm going to live like that. I'm going to lay my life down. 
I'm going to trust him and I'm going to obey him and I'm going to be Christ-like in that way. I'm going to lay my life down because of what he's done. So now these men, especially for the next weeks and stuff here, are going to go through the process of not even having their Savior there until the greater comes, which is the Holy Spirit, which we have and enjoy. So we don't have to necessarily be running around with swords. But if you're going to live this Christian life without the Holy Spirit and then dwelling a God, I'd suggest you get a sword. It might be helpful. And you've seen that. I think there's some uh, compounds out there. But um, you really look at it, and you look at what the Holy Spirit, how he guides and how he protects us there. And here, Jesus says, man, my hand's going to be off this. And you need to be ready. There's going to be trials that are going to come. There's going to be, try to be wise with just the way things, you're going to need money. You're going to need the basic things of life instead of being reliant on me for a time. And this change comes. And even at the end of that change, everything's going to change ministry-wise. Now you're going to identify with a Savior who was crucified, who lost his life, and right rose from the dead. And that, that right there is offensive to so many people. It's a stumbling block. You know, if, if salvation was just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he ascended into heaven and, and he, you know, chose to wipe out your sins, you know, what sins? Well, what do you mean I need a Savior? I'm fine with Jesus. I think he's an awesome person. You know, how many people, how many people have you ever met outside the church that say, oh yeah, Jesus was a good guy? Is he your Savior? No, I don't need a Savior. You know? That's offensive. How can you say that? He's the only way, the only truth, the only way. Ah. And so everything changes. And to identify with Christ and to share him. And so verse 38, it says, And so they said, Look, here, look, look. Here, we have two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Now, you just... I gotta love these guys. I have sometimes a hard time when I come to a scripture like this of picturing these these disciples of as grown men until I kind of reflect on the stupid things I do. But right now it sounds like a bunch of little kids, right? Look, we got two swords. You know? When Jesus said to them, That's enough, that's not 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 okay, we have enough swords now, we don't need to buy any more. Okay, that's not what he's meaning. Obviously it wasn't enough. When you look at the context, the Garden of Gethsemane, almost it seems like there was one too many with Peter, right? Like, gave him this two, out of the two swords, why didn't somebody give him one, right? It was more like, that's enough. Like, you ever walk in your room and your two kids are arguing? What do you say? That's enough. Knock it off. Literally, that's what it's like. I'm trying to explain these things to you, and you guys just totally missed it. You just... Your response means you got nothing about what I just said. That's enough. I don't even, he, he doesn't even try to re-explain it to him. He's just like, okay, that's it. We're, we're good. We're leaving. Let's, let's walk out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he prays. And he prays. And so this morning we see a glimpse of what it means to be a Christian and walk in this Christian life. How we are to be servants. And not just servants to each other in the body of Christ, but to servants to all. Just as Christ was a servant to all mankind, and he even serves those who will not accept him and are going to go to hell anyways. Even when he is mistreated 
and despitefully used, he chose to serve them and love them. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world, even those who ultimately reject him. Their sins are forgiven, even though they reject him. And so you see those things, they don't accept that forgiveness, but Jesus loves them and we are to be servants. And even when we fail, to remember who we are serving, what kingdom we're in. This isn't a king when you come back and go, oh, I blew it, I didn't slay the dragon or whatever, and he chops off your head. He's praying for you even when he knows you're going to fail before you fail and still loves you and concerns and, and, and trusts us. And then to identify with him, to not be ashamed of it, to realize what we identify as and what that looks like. You know, and I love it when the, you, know, you see the disciples and Peter and Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of what it is. I'm not ashamed if it offends you. I'm not ashamed of, oh, I'm sorry this or I'm sorry. No, I'm not ashamed of the truth. Because the gospel, the truth of that, the truth of sin and a savior and those things, no matter how bad they make you feel, are important. You know, could you imagine your doctor come up to you and go, you know, everything's good. Don't worry about it. You leave the office, he turns around to that nurse. I just didn't want to make that person feel bad, man. He has cancer. He could get a couple surgeries to take care of it, but I just didn't want him to know. You know, it'd probably make him feel, it'd probably be offensive, hurt his feelings. No, tell me I have cancer, so you chop it out. I'm not offensive of the gospel. And so that night after this, in the book of John, we have a record of Jesus praying. Just as he had prayed for Peter, he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's actually not just praying for the 12, but all that believe in him. Uh, John, if you want to turn there, it's John 17, 15. So John chapter 17, verse 15 says, I do not pray that you should take them out of this world, but that you should keep them from the, devil, the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, I also send them into this world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, sacrifice myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. So you see him... Jesus even praying for us. He doesn't pull us out of the world. He sends us into it, but protect them from the evil one. He's going to make us pure because of what he's done and his forgiveness on the cross for us. And by the truth of God's word. By the truth of God's word. When you sit down, there are so many places in the Bible where Jesus prays for us. And to look at those, especially through that section of John when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. And to see his heart for us and what he's called us to is amazing. 